From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is the EAH Deep Dive. Deep Dive is a podcast series within a podcast series that the Hydrogen Media team is producing in collaboration with leading innovators and companies in the hydrogen economy of today to talk about how they are ensuring success for the hydrogen economy of tomorrow. I am Patrick Malloy, manager of the Breakthrough Technologies Program at RMI. And I'm delighted, along with Andrew, to be hosting this episode, where we are joined by Kieran Coleman, the Energy and Industry Lead at the UN High Level Champions for Global Climate Action. With COP26 right around the corner, we've got a lot of ground to cover and only so much time in which to cover it. So let's get started. So Kieran, thanks for joining us. Perhaps you can give our listeners a little intro, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. Sure. Patrick and Andrew, thanks for the, the kind invitation to join you here today. It's a, it's a real honor, and, and hi, everyone out there. My name is Kieran Coleman. I am uh, energy and industry lead, working in support of the high-level champions for, for global climate action uh, on secondment from, from Rocky Mountain Institute. More broadly then, Kieran, could you, I think probably some people are not aware of who the high-level champions are and sort of the role in COP and, and your role in that uh, in that system as well. So if you could maybe run us through what are the high-level champions, who are they, what they do in COP, and how you are involved as well, that would be great. Absolutely. So, yes, the, the high-level champions have a UN mandate while they're appointed by the, the country that's hosting COP. So it's, it's called the, the COP presidency which in this case is, is the United Kingdom. They're appointed, appointed to that role, but with the UN mandate. And, and this has been the case since the Paris Agreement, uh, when parties to the UNFCCC, uh, that is the UN Framework uh, Convention on, on Climate Change, which was the this legal basis for the, the Paris Agreement, when those parties, or otherwise known as, as countries, realized that you know, there's a lot happening outside of the uh, international um, diplomatic space on climate. Right. There's a real increasing groundswell of, of action and, um, and leadership from communities, from businesses, from uh, subnational governments, including cities and states, from investors. And it's, and it's really important to, to, to further motivate, animate, and, and communicate the, those activities, both to, to countries, um, two parties to the UFCCC, but also within the community to help, to help deepen um, and strengthen collaboration needed to help achieve the, the uh, ambitions of, of the Paris Agreement. So in, in, in 2015, the, the, the parties created this high-level champions role. They also created something called, um, shortly thereafter, really the year after, um, something called the Marrakesh Partnership uh, for Global Climate Action, um, which is a, a vehicle for collaboration among international organizations, uh, non-state actors, as they're called, to, to collaborate more intensively uh, in a specific forum um, that's supported by the UFCCC against those um, those objectives. So the, the high-level champions help to sort of to guide and, and structure that that work. This is this past year is really the first year where uh, you know it's the second year where the high-level champion has been a, a someone from the business community and in recognition of the importance of COP26 as as the fifth COP since Paris at which. Countries are are supposed to bring more ambitious uh, contributions or voluntary commitments to climate action at the national level. Uh, Nigel Topping, who was appointed by the, the UK government, 
has really brought, taught, taken a bit more of a, a systematic approach, um, working across every sector of the economy, the finance sector, civil society, um, both on on mitigation and resilience at sort of a level of, of organization that I think is is quite quite new. So um, in, in that capacity, I've, I've helped to, to support our industry and, and energy teams um, and specifically uh, focus on the hydrogen and steel sectors. So that's a that's a great segue into, you know, the question that I think probably most people have top of mind, which is, you know, in the run up to COP, what what have you been focused on and, and where where have you seen kind of uh, the kind of the momentum coming from, given that uh, hydrogen is a, an area with a lot of media concentration, a lot of attention there? Yeah, it's been a busy few uh, months, to, to say the least, and a few more months than we originally expected with, with the, the sad advent of, of COVID and the delay of, of COP from, from last fall to, to this November, which has been, I think, helpful, at least in, in my capacity, to take a bit of a, a more systematic view and looking at the landscape of action and ambition and, and recognizing where there are gaps, where can we help to, to fill those gaps you know, in, in one instance, the, at the end of last year and helping to catalyze the launch of the green hydrogen catapult and as an example of, of how we aim to work, which is to, to help set more ambitious targets and both for deployment and, and cost uh, that, that correlate to thresholds, right, or tipping points beyond which market actors can, can, can do what they do best in, in generating sort of self-reinforcing feedback loops in, in markets. So, uh, we take a sort of systems approach to to that that challenge, and and it's been great to see the the catapult and its partners um, take that work forward in, in earnest over the past few months. And I think we'll see some exciting some exciting progress from them at at, at COP itself. In parallel, I've been working with a variety of, of different institutions and organizations to to strengthen and and support their efforts. Um, this includes things like the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, which which is um, one of the the entities behind Climate Action 100, um, which which set out a, a strategy for engaging with the steel sector for investors, uh, and so so recognizing and contributing sort of our our assessment of what's on the critical path for investors for uh, the real economy for uh, within the real economy, both producers and consumers of steel. Um, as we help to synthesize a set of, of climate action pathways published through the Marrakesh Partnership, I, I worked worked with with the, the IIGCC and 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 um, their investor partners to to contribute to that that strategy as as an example. Yeah, and, and I think I think there's there's a, a number of, of areas where we've worked, and, and typically it's it's with partners, right? It's with the businesses themselves, it's with organizations like like RMI and. IIGCC that are really doing the hard work of, of engaging with, with stakeholders to build ambition and action on, on the way to COP. And so we, we look for those those places that are maybe a little also a little less um, a little less popular, but but also uh, have opportunity for for significant leverage in in uh, shaping the the energy and industrial system on in, in such a way that that we think is is fit for purpose to to get on a one and a half degree trajectory both by twenty thirty and, and twenty fifty. So. Yeah, it's really at that interface of, of public and private sectors of, of what are called non-state actors and the, the country parties to the, the UNFCCC that, that we try to, to uh, build ambition and action in, in those ways. Yeah. And Karen, what are the, the quote, guiding principles for a lot climate-aligned hydrogen production and, and why, why do you guys see those as important? 
It's funny, I missed that in my last answer, because uh, it has taken some time over the past few months to, to shore those up uh, in support of um, the, those, those, those Marrakesh partners that I, that I mentioned earlier. So these are these principles, which we actually just published today on the Race to Zero website, are, are sort of a significant product from the, the High Level Champions and the Marrakesh partnership over the past few months, the significant output of our work that is, which, which really respond to our understanding of uh, a gap that had opened up between industry and civil society and policy on the topic of hydrogen. And, and some might say, what gap? You know, all we hear is, is excitement and momentum and, and, and aspiration on, on hydrogen. Um, what, what gap are we, are we talking about? And I, and I think the gap is, is, is generated by uncertainty over the integrity and, and validity of some uh, perspectives on the role of hydrogen, so the, the scale of its of its potential, scale of need for hydrogen, production pathways associated with um, the production of, of, of hydrogen, where and how it's deployed uh, to serve the aims not just of, of decarbonization uh, on the scale and pace that we need, but also other objectives like like health, like resilience, like uh, economic development and, and equity in in the, in the context of, of the energy transition and and um, a response to, to, to the urgent response to climate change. So a number of partners were, you know, in, in a regular convening of these partners articulated concerns and, and opportunities for a set of principles to, to sort of cut through that noise and, and try to, to build convergence between civil society, industry, and policymakers, or really from the perspective of international experts and, and, and civil society organizations about where and how hydrogen can can contribute most effectively to decarbonization of, of the energy and industrial sectors. And that's that's to say I'm giving away a little bit of it, right? So so there's a I think a, a fairly strong view that's emerged from from some partners that that uh, hydrogen the, the bulk of the role for hydrogen is really in deep decarbonization of sectors where direct electrification is is uh, is, is more challenging right now. And, and similarly, that you know, much of the discussion on hydrogen has not really focused on putting it on a in service of a one and a half degree trajectory, um, which we know is, is is really essential to minimize the, the worst effects of, of climate change from the science provided by the, the IPCC over the past few years. That, so that's to say that just there is some attention paid to sort of certification and, and different grades of, of hydrogen, but but not enough maybe on on thresholds and carbon intensities and what's acceptable and what's not for for hydrogen to, to play a role in the, in the system. Recognizing some data points like the Energy Transition Commission saying that if, if all hydrogen was produced at, um, in 2050 at, at current emissions intensities, we, we would have you know two to three gigatons of emissions on our hands. Um, so it's really important that we, we get this right, both in, in where, what sectors we apply hydrogen in a focused way, in a targeted way, uh, and also how we produce it, you know, with ultimately with the recognition as well that the only, only reliable uh, and, and strictly aligned form of hydrogen with, with net zero by 2050 on a one and a half degree trajectory is, is renewable hydrogen, right? Which which at, at production is, is emits zero emissions. And over time, the supply chains for, for the, the renewables and the electrolyzers will themselves decarbonize. So Points like that, uh, I think we, we worked through with, with many of those partners, which include everyone from the International Energy Agency, International Renewable Energy Agency, Energy Transitions Commission, the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, and, and, and many others. Um, 
and I feel I feel compelled to, to mention them because of the, the sort of strong role they played in, in really open discussion on the, this really complicated issue, right? So Kieran, and maybe we've touched on it a little bit, but but it's worth worth kind of asking, you know, that global discussion about hydrogen, you know, what has been missing so far? And obviously, obviously that kind of tracking and, and kind of regulatory piece uh, applies here, but like, where do we need to turn our attention? Yeah, thanks, Patrick. This is something that we see really coming up more and more, but has, has taken some time, I think, in, in getting the attention that it, that it needs. And I think a good place to start is sort of the, the fundamentals of, of, high, of renewable hydrogen in particular, right? We know uh, it takes a lot of land to produce green hydrogen. We know uh, costs will come down quite quickly. And we also know there's a really urgent need to bring those costs down through deployment in, in every region uh, over the next few years. And, and so with that, on, on top of the fact that um, a, a large amount of renewable energy potential resides in, in developing countries, we have the makings for uh, a, a more global uh, approach to hydrogen that supports equitable development pathways and economic growth through mitigation, not as a, 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 a sacrifice of it. Right. So, you know, the fact that, that Africa receives 40% of, of all renewable energy has 40% of all renewable energy potential on Earth, as the carbon tracker told us through the sky is the limit report. That, that's this is an example of, of uh, recognizing the, the fundamentals and, and being ready to uh, uh, act on them. Right. In service of the speed and scale of de- decarbonization we need. So. We, we think that the, the time is, is right for that kind of discussion and, and where uh, a lot of c- criticism of, of green hydrogen has come into date, the idea that there's not enough land available in, in Europe. Uh, we see good examples of, of responses to that already in the case of, say, to look at LKAB in, in Sweden, uh, which basically said, you know, okay, yeah, you're right, maybe there's not enough footprint around some of the steel plants in Europe, so I think we'll just build our own. Uh, with with a you know tens of billions of dollars in investment planned over the next two decades in, in northern Sweden and and the proliferation of other green steel production plans up there. So so the same kind of entrepreneurism and collaboration I think is necessary and is is actually in the pipeline in in countries throughout um, northern and sub-Saharan Africa, in, in South America, in South Asia that will really uh, I think go quite a long way in in teeing up the question of of how ready are we to deploy the, the solutions that we know we need on the time frame we need them and to, to grapple with the implications of that in our in our societies and economies. And Kieran, we are certainly conscious of your time this close, uh, of your schedule this close to uh, COP. So we, we want to uh, be conscious of that and cognizant of your limitations. But since we have you, if we can wrap up on one last point, I think uh, I think we'd be interested to hear what you guys, you know, what you would point to as the headline achievements for the for the high level champions over the last year. And then to the extent that you can give us some view to what we should expect to see coming out of COP, uh, what you guys might have in the pipeline and or at least what we should be looking out for uh, leading into COP in the coming weeks. Thanks, Andrew. I'll, I'll try to be uh, quick on behalf of my my colleagues, which is a um, it's a, it's a it's a big team actually. And, and so, you know, I think I think we've done a, a few things over the past few months. First of all, really really built confidence in um, the essential uh, outcome of of net zero by twenty fifty. 
with the race to zero being the sort of penultimate campaign in which uh, net zero commitments are, are made and, and validated uh, on the science. Um, and we see that over the past year, exponential growth in, in uh, membership in the race to zero. So it's now about 5,000 businesses, 250 investors, uh, 800, or no, no, sorry, we just crossed the thousand city mark at covering 15% of the global economy and, and a billion people and, and uh, about a quarter, uh, a fifth of, of global CO2 emissions. So the anchoring of net zero commitments in, in science-based targets and, and, uh, and um, validated pathways, I think is a really important piece to, to enclosing and, and calling an end to emissions by, by mid-century at the, at the latest. And the race to zero has been a collective effort across all sectors and, um, and, and our team. Uh, over the past few months, I think I think the second piece is is really looking at specific and actionable targets and and and, and measures. So, um, the integration of of financial sector initiatives into the, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which which includes uh, ninety four trillion dollars worth of, of assets under assets under management in the financial institutions that are party to it, um, that are are now coming forward with with really bold near-term targets in the coming weeks for the pace and scale and measures by which they will decarbonize their portfolios. Um, so another, another example like, like the catapult that, that um, which, which in its, in its case uh, sets a, a you know, mid-decade target for deployment and cost. And so that, that combination of, of long-term and, and near-term targets to back up the long-term trajectory, I think is, is one of the, the, the positive outcomes of our, of our work over the past few months. I, I think I, I'll stop there and say, for what we hope to see coming out of COP, I'll, I'll leave it to COP itself. I'm sure there'll be plenty of analysis and, and, and news there and encourage everybody to, to tune in um, and know that, you know, COP, this COP is, is also just another beginning. Um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll look to a quote from our uh, dear founder of, of RMI said, uh, you know, we have just enough time if we start now and, and it's something we can all continue to take forward with us. Uh, after after November, really appreciate it, Karen. And uh, fair enough, you know we had we had to try see if we could get some exclusive uh, <laughs> you know, headlines there. But uh, really appreciate your time, and uh, thank you very much for for coming on and, and uh, making the time to speak with us. I know you guys have a, a hectic schedule uh, these days. My pleasure. And that's a wrap for our EIH deep dive. A huge thank you to Kieran for his input and the work he has put in uh, in supporting and developing this episode. We look forward to seeing what the coming week has in store. Thank you as always to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed listening to the EIH deep dive episode as much as we enjoyed producing and recording it. Thank you again for listening and we hope you will join us next time.